Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, it's Amy McDonald's here. Welcome to this edition of the Arsenal Audio Program. Arsenal versus Wolverhampton Wanderers, Thursday, 24th of February, 2022. Kickoff, 7:45 p.m. The contents: official voice around Arsenal, sustainability, player feature: Kieran Tierney, history, community voice: Arsenal women, visitors: Wolverhampton Wanderers, academy young gun, around the academy. Match action, Arsenal versus Brentford FC, supporters' voice and teams. Official voice, Dr. Gary O'Driscoll. Every issue, we hear exclusively from significant figures at the club on our official voice pages of the programme. Today, two years into the pandemic, we speak to our head of sports medicine, Dr. Gary O'Driscoll, about the challenges the club has faced and continue to face in the battle against COVID-19. If I was asked to identify any areas of our daily routine that have been impacted by COVID-19, then the answer would be straightforward, every area. COVID has changed everything that we do from a medical, rehabilitation, performance and recovery point of view. Since February 2020, my daily meeting with the manager has started with a review of COVID issues and ended by preparing for the worst-case scenario. It's become the first thing on our minds, for the whole of the staff. From day one of the pandemic, we've had to adapt and amend the way we prepare for every training session and every game on a day-to-day basis. The first thing we do now when we prepare for a training session or a match is to consider current infections and current government and Premier League protocols. We then assess what the impact of a worst-case scenario would be with a positive test from a player or a member of staff. It's become a matter of course for us and has changed everything we do. The biggest challenges were certainly at the start of the pandemic. In the days after the first lockdown, when there was no testing, the initial return of our players to training was extremely difficult. During lockdown, our players were not allowed out of their house for more than 60 minutes to do gentle exercises in the park. They had no access to the training ground or to the gym 
and the biggest challenge was trying to maintain the fitness of the players during the period. We then had to adapt to everyone returning to the training ground with no access to the buildings. Players and staff had to drive into the car park, go straight onto the pitches, then straight back to their cars afterwards. No showers, no changing rooms, no meeting rooms, no restaurant and no use of the medical facilities. We established treatment and recovery tables outside. We were only allowed to interact with the players for a short period of time and we were constantly wearing PPE. Players had to park 15 metres away from each other and they each had their own kit in a box marked at their parking space. They would get changed in their cars, then head to the pitch, still socially distanced. At that stage, part of our role was to ensure that players and staff didn't get too close to each other. You can imagine that's not easy for coaches who are trying to prepare for a game and wanting to talk to players. Simple actions such as picking up a ball affected the session, touching a mannequin, touching the post, everything had to be cleaned and wiped down afterwards. All the gym equipment was put outside, and after one player had used it, it needed to be cleaned and made ready for the next. So training sessions that used to last two hours had to be spread from 9 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night so we could bring players in in small groups, train outside, clean up then prepare for the next small group. The initial few months were incredibly demanding on all of the staff. When people did get symptoms or became unwell, there were dramatic changes to the way we had to manage that individual. We didn't know the natural course of the illness or how it would affect individual players or staff. There was some early scientific evidence stating that there could, for example, be heart issues. So each time a player picked up the virus, we had to be very careful how we integrated them back into training because nobody really knew how the virus would affect an elite athlete in the short, medium or long term. Our GPS trackers and our heart monitors became even more important and something we learned from every day. It was very frustrating for the coaches because we couldn't allow a player to go straight back into training. They had to take a few more days to integrate back into the demands of the session. Since then, we've had to continually adapt and amend our processes as we've gone through the pandemic. I think that we're now experienced enough to be able to manage most situations, while also being ready for the unpredictable. Having said that, in the first few months we were literally learning as we went along. It was the only way we could do it. The scale of the logistics, staffing and time involved was astonishing. We had to adopt a series of new positions to be able to cope, another full-time doctor, and the health and safety department all combining to risk assess almost everything that we did. The facilities team has played a huge part in managing the logistics, and medical manager Sophie Kerthoys has effectively masterminded the entire testing process. We had to bring in other staff to manage the day-to-day -day running of the training ground, and there were huge logistical operations too. We had recovery bikes, running machines, weight systems installed into almost all of the first team players' houses so that they could work from home. We reviewed the nutrition demands for the whole squad and food was delivered daily to the players' houses. As a medical team, we recognised that there was little we knew for certain about COVID-19 and of course we had no first-hand experience of a pandemic. However, as the pandemic progressed, we also recognised we had very good people at the club with good principles, and by sharing our judgement and our experience, we could work through and adapt to almost all the issues thrown at us. Our primary advice to the players, their families and staff throughout the pandemic was to follow government guidance 
And for the more specific sports-related details, we needed to rely on our expert referral network. There were, and still are, many questions that I didn't know the answer to. However, I knew who I could go to to get advice. We got excellent guidance from people all over the world, and we fed that through to the players and staff. What surprised me most during this time was the ability and willingness of our players and staff to adapt. This was epitomised by Mikel Arteta, who after being the first person at the club to be infected, has led the way. Mikel constantly challenged and pressed us all on ways of keeping players and staff fit and happy, whilst ensuring safety and welfare first. The resilience that the staff and players showed, and the way everyone has come together has been fantastic to watch. Despite every single aspect of our day-to-day routines changing, there have been no complaints from anyone. It's been great to see, and I'm convinced that the tough times will leave us in a better position going forward. Until recently, all players and staff have been tested five or six times a week, and the burden of testing has been a huge issue for us and every team. Testing can take two to three hours a day, and players and staff are not allowed out of their cars into the training ground until they've been tested and a negative result has come back. It's been incredibly difficult to prepare for a Premier League game when you may lose several players or key staff the day before a game. Then of course if we do get positive results, I must tell the manager that we've lost one of his players or key members of staff, and all his preparations must be reviewed. Despite the recent changes announced by the government, the Premier League have mandated that we continue regular testing and adhere to protective protocols, at least in the short term. But hopefully after that, this can end, and we'll only test symptomatic individuals. It's been a difficult time for the Premier League too. They've had to impose guidelines and protocols on all teams, each of which are very different and prepare in very different ways. It's been very frustrating at times, but the Premier League have managed this very important role getting the games back on while maintaining player welfare. Each club was assigned a full-time Covid assessor to oversee everything that's done at every training session. There's no doubt there have been frustrations and difficult times, but overall, the collaboration has been valuable. The Omicron variant coming at the same time as the heavy winter schedule was something of a perfect storm. There certainly wasn't any complacency but there was perhaps an idea that things were starting to become a bit more manageable on a day-to-day basis. Then Omicron appeared, and suddenly you felt like we were almost going back to the beginning. We were still able to train, but many of the players and staff suffered from the second variant as well. It affected several of our people who missed training and missed preparation for big games. Again, we feel that now we're getting to the stage where we're dealing with it, and we're able to cope with most situations. We've learned so much from Delta and Omicron that if another variant came along, we're much better positioned to be able to manage it. As well as the physical symptoms that some players suffered, there are other unseen effects to the virus. It goes without saying that Covid has affected the mental health of many in society, and the same is true for a small number at the training ground. The psychological effects of long-term isolation and lockdown can be profound, and this is well documented. For elite football players who are used to training every day with their colleagues and performing in front of 60,000 people is a big change. That stimulus and daily exposure was suddenly taken away and many of them also had their support network taken away, being so far away from home. We did have some significant issues with some of the players and staff and they may well still be going on. It might be many years before we realise the depth of how COVID-19 has affected our players. 
But I'd like to think that we've come through this pandemic stronger and more robust, and our player welfare team and psychology staff have been instrumental in managing that. Another issue to bear in mind is that we've had three players who have needed major surgery since the start of the pandemic. For each of those players, no one was able to accompany them for their procedures or visit them post-operatively. Normally I would accompany the player to all consultations and to the surgical procedure itself. However, for each of those players they had to go through the experience alone. Their subsequent rehabilitation process has also been completely different to anything we've done before, given the limits on contact and isolation, and huge credit must go to the players and our medical and performance staff. The issue of vaccination is highly emotive, and individuals have their own personal views, but we're in a good position here at the moment. We have a squad and staff where nearly every person is double vaccinated. Everyone's been through an education process, and vaccinations have never been forced upon our players or staff. We insisted that it must be an individual's choice, but the evidence and our experience indicates that the more vaccinations you have had, the safer you are, the less exposed you are the fewer symptoms you'll have and the less of a risk you'll pose to others. I accept the science might change over time, but that's what we know now. The club's been fully in line with the government advice to get everybody vaccinated and we've been extremely lucky that the majority, almost unanimously, of our players and staff accepted that. So there's been profound change over the last two years and enormous upheaval, but there have been many benefits too. We've brought in good people into the club who have a lot to offer, not just for the pandemic, and will continue to benefit from that. Players and staff recognise that it's not just COVID-19, but other viruses that can be passed on easily. And being aware of that can benefit their health too. For almost two years we've worked in a bubble of around 55 relevant people, and that bubble hasn't been allowed to be breached. No visitors or guests at training, no outside specialists visiting us, no mixing with the other groups, even at London Colney the women's team and academy sides, for example. The same bubble has followed us everywhere and we're looking forward to breaking out of this. It now seems that we're coming to the end of the restrictions. We'll be better off as a club. Around Arsenal the main photograph in the print version of this programme above the first article has the caption David Seaman and Aaron Ramsdale know you're in safe hands with Joseph Gockman, Murat's dad, at Chip-In Fish Bar on Holloway Road. Arsenal supporting supporters. Murat Gockman has been the owner of Chip-In Fish Bar for two years, but his family have been associated with the traditional fish and chip shop on Holloway Road for more than 20 years. A long-standing favourite with match-going fans, Arsenal staff and the local community. Merritt tells us why he took over the business and the thrill of being associated with Arsenal. Some of my family had been involved with the chip-in for decades, but when the pandemic struck and its future looked really uncertain, I decided to buy the business and see if I could make a go of it, says Murat, who is supported by his business partner and friend, Ferret. It was really difficult because of the uncertainty around COVID, continues the Arsenal fan. We lost the match day trade when the games were behind closed doors, which is key for us, and there were long periods when we couldn't open the shop and only provide takeaway. But we wanted to modernise the chip-in and give it an online presence, 
so we were able to still get food to the local community through delivery. This was really important to me because there are a lot of older people who had always gone to that chip shop and we were able to still get food to them. The Chip Inn has been there for 60 years. It's a big part of the community, and I think it was really important that it managed to survive the pandemic, and now what Arsenal are providing for us will hopefully help us as we come out of this situation stronger. A talented footballer in his youth who had trials with Peterborough and Aston Villa, football has always been a big part of Murat's life, in particular his local team. Arsenal really means a lot to me, he says. I grew up locally and went to Holloway School. I played football in the JVC Centre, supported the Gunners, and the goal of every kid was to get to the school cup finals when you'd get to play on the Highbury pitch. Arsenal is just such a big part of the area, and I'm really proud that another part of the community, the Chip Inn, now has that association with Arsenal. As a fan... Welcoming Aaron Ramsdale and the legendary David Seaman to his business has been a huge thrill. The campaign has been brilliant, smiles Murat. Working with the Arsenal staff, I'm actually amazed that so many of them seem to have been coming to the chip shop for so many years, and of course, filming the video, which was an amazing experience. Aaron was such a down-to-earth guy. He seemed to love being part of it, just like David Seaman did. What a great guy. We couldn't have had a better experience. And there was another star of the video, serving Aaron his chips. I love the fact my dad's in the film too, says Murat with pride. The chip in means a lot to my dad. He's worked there over 20 years and knows everything about the business. I encouraged him to take it a bit easier and work at our other business, a bakery, but after a few weeks he wanted to get back to what he likes doing the most, making the perfect fish and chips. We're actually really proud of being a traditional fish and chip shop. My dad is adamant that we only use certain types of potatoes because they produce the best chips, and our fish is really fresh. People say it's like the fish and chips you get when you are at the seaside. Hopefully, more and more people will get to hear about the chip in. Now Arsenal have been evolved. The guys there are even helping set up social media accounts for us. For now, I'm really looking forward to being at the game against Wolves with family and friends to cheer on the team in an executive box. It's not the kind of thing that happens every day to people from a small business like us. Thanks, Arsenal. To watch Aaron and David enjoying their experience at the Chip Inn, follow at Arsenal on social media and, of course, make sure you take the time to visit the Chip Inn and sample the superb traditional fish and chips. Ref Watch Tonight's referee is Martin Atkinson. The West Yorkshire whistler has presided over three Arsenal games this season, the 5-0 defeat at Manchester City when he sent off Granite Sharker. 3-2 defeat at Old Trafford, and the 2-0 Carabao Cup defeat against Liverpool last month, sending off Thomas Partey. In all, he has refed 15 PL games this season, showing 33 yellow cards and two reds. Put your shirt on it. Supporters who have an interest in Gunners shirts will be keen to know that there is a Facebook group dedicated to your passion. The Arsenal Shirt Collectors Facebook group now has well over 3,000 members from numerous countries across the Arsenal world. There are different features on the group, such as 
meet the collectors, favourite shirts and shirts on tour, and many of Arsenal's most knowledgeable kit experts are members. There is a strong sense of community on the group, despite the wide geographic spread of membership. The group features some great green content on recycling of old shirts and upcycling of memorabilia and also has a strong global inclusive approach and includes men's and women's shirts. There's a strong vintage theme with shirts dating back to the 1970s and there are loads of Arsenal fan stories to be heard within a group that has a very positive atmosphere focusing on the club rather than individual results. To join... Please go Arsenal Shirt Collectors on Facebook, where you can request to join, and check out their Twitter feed, at shirt underscore Arsenal, for some superb content. Happy 20th birthday, Arsblog. It's a red-letter day for Andrew Mangan and his team this Sunday, February the 27th, when Arsblog celebrates its 20th birthday. From a humble website back in 2002, to a vast social media presence now, and of course the Arscast podcast, Arsblog now produces a huge amount of content enjoyed by thousands of fans. Arsblog's launch coincided with a comfortable 4-1 win for the Gunners over Michael Ballack's Bayer Leverkusen at Highbury in the Champions League. The goalscorers that night were Robert Pires, Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira and Dennis Bergkamp four names synonymous with everything we love about Arsenal Football Club, and 20 years on, we would suggest that there are many Arsenal fans around the world who now have a special place in their hearts for Arsblog too. Happy birthday. Tonight's programme. Tonight's issue is the second we have produced for this game versus Wolverhampton Wanderers. The original programme was completed prior to the game's COVID-induced postponement on December the 28th. There are still a limited amount of the original programmes available on our sales portal, programme.arsenal.com. There are less than 100 of this collectible remaining to be sold. If you would like to purchase one, please head to the portal soon. Steve Burtonshaw. Following the obituary in the Brentford programme, we caught up with Pat Rice, who was coached by Steve Burtonshaw in the early part of their Arsenal careers in the late 60s and early 70s, and worked alongside him when he was Arsenal's long-standing chief scout in the 80s and 90s. Our legendary skipper and coach said, I remember Steve coming into the club and people were unsure of who he was, but that soon changed when we saw how he operated on the training pitches. He was an excellent coach and wanted to get the ball on the floor and play. Players loved him. He was such a good coach who put on great sessions that were never repetitive. He was a nice guy and also thought about players and what was best for them. He was a decent player too when he joined in on coaching sessions. With his first spell at the club coming during Bertie Mee's successful tenure, Pat says he was a key component of that success. As part of the coaching team in 1970-71, to he was obviously part of one of the great seasons at the club, insists Pat, working under the great Don Howe, of course, and that coaching group worked together superbly. Steve helped developers as young players for first-team action too. Players like Ray Kennedy, Charlie George, Sammy Nelson, Eddie Kelly and myself. 
We won the football combination, which was the reserve league then, and then he worked with the generation after us who won the FA Youth Cup for the very first time in 1970-71. According to Pat, it wasn't just on the training pitches where Steve impressed, he also knew the Arsenal way. It was always noticeable what a good reputation Steve had within the game, says Pat. He was really respected, and he always carried himself so well, a great representative for the club, and he knew that he was representing Arsenal whenever he was away from Highbury. Knowing the Arsenal way was really important in the spell he had as caretaker manager too and his role at the club as chief scout illustrated what a good eye he had and feel for the game. He just knew Arsenal and knew football. But it's as a man away from the game that Pat saves his most special praise. Above all, says the Arsenal ambassador, Steve was just a really nice, humble guy who was always a pleasure to be around. I'll really miss him, as I know many people will and I want to offer sincere condolences to all of his family at this really difficult time. Final words. When Arsenal headed to Brighton during lockdown in June 2020, the Seagulls matchday programme featured what's likely to have been Steve Burtonshaw's final interview. We featured an extract here to give you a flavour of this Arsenal and Brighton man. After 16 years at Brighton, you moved to Arsenal as a coach in 1967. How did that come about? I was invited by Bertie Mee to come in as reserve team player coach, and when a club of Arsenal's stature comes calling, it's not something you turn down. I also had a great group of players to work with, the likes of Charlie George, Bob Wilson, Pat Rice, Sammy Nelson, Eddie Kelly, Ray Kennedy and not surprisingly, we won the Football Combination and London Challenge Cup. We knew we had a group here that would go on to have good careers with the club, and all became members of the League and FA Cup double-winning squad of 1970-71. What are your memories of that double-winning season? We took great pride in seeing so many players who had come through our system do so well. Aside from their ability, another key element of that squad was the spirit and togetherness they had. They never knew when they were beaten. Look at the final week of the season, going to Tottenham to clinch the league title, then having to endure extra time on a hot day at Wembley to beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final. That shows you what those boys were all about. You then had a spell as first-team coach when Don Howe became West Brom manager before managing Sheffield Wednesday and QPR. Returning to Arsenal, you took over first-team duties for a while, didn't you? Funnily enough, it was when Don left again, and I was asked to take the team in a caretaker capacity in 1986. Again, when you're asked by Arsenal, you don't turn it down. You see it as a real honour and a challenge you can't be scared of. I was fortunate to have a lot of good coaches and good people around me at that time. I couldn't have asked for a tougher start at Tottenham, losing 1-0, but it was a case of steadying the ship and seeing out the season until an appointment was made. That appointment was George Graham, who brought some great success, of which you were a part of behind the scenes. Some great times with a couple of league titles, wins in the Cups, 
and also success in Europe, George put Arsenal back where they belonged. I obviously knew him well from his playing days, and although some people said they were surprised to see him go into management, I wasn't. He was always a very good talker on the pitch and knew his football. He'd done his apprenticeship at Millwall and was ready to take on the challenge. He had a plan. He utilised young players who knew the club, having come through the system, players like Merson, Thomas, Rocastle, Adams, and he also brought in players from lower down the levels who were hungry for success, the likes of Dixon, Bould and Smith. It worked perfectly. The highlight was Anfield in 1989. What are your memories? We'd had bad results the week before against Derby and Wimbledon, and everyone had written us off. No doubt many Arsenal fans too. Yet inside the building, George was always confident, bullish even, that we could win by two clear goals up there. Remember, this was a great Liverpool team, but George had a plan. He played three at the back and it worked to perfection. It was just a great, great night. I was in the dugout, but remember the police wouldn't let us on to the pitch to celebrate at the final whistle. We made up for that on the journey home, though. My memories of that coach ride are very fuzzy indeed. Ticket News Home Tickets Arsenal vs Leicester City Premier League Sunday, March the 13th Kick-off 4pm Live on Sky Sports This is a Category B fixture. My Arsenal Rewards members will earn 100 points for each ticket purchased for this fixture. Tickets are now on sale to all current Silver, Purple, Cannon and Junior Gunner members via the Ticket Exchange. Arsenal vs Brighton and Hove Albion Premier League Saturday, April the 9th Kick-off 3pm This is a Category C fixture. My Arsenal Rewards members earn 200 points for each ticket purchased. Tickets are now on sale to Silver, Purple, Cannon and Junior Gunners. Away tickets Watford vs Arsenal, Vicarage Road, Premier League, Sunday, March the 6th, kick-off 2pm, sold out, live on BT Sport. Aston Villa vs Arsenal, Villa Park, Premier League, Saturday, March the 19th, kick-off 12.30pm, live on Sky Sports. We have received an allocation of 2,961 tickets. Please check arsenal.com for latest availability for this fixture. AST Raffle Arsenal Supporters Trust are currently running a raffle with all funds going to the Arsenal Foundation. When you've read the incredible list of prizes, we are sure you'll agree it's a must-enter for all Arsenal fans. The prizes Shirt signed by the men's team Shirt signed by the women's team Football signed by the men's team Three copies of Per Matasaka's autobiography, signed by the BFG himself. A pair of tickets to the My Arsenal Rewards executive box for a Premier League game. A pair of tickets for a Premier League game in club level. To enter, please go to the AST Twitter feed at AST underscore Arsenal, where you will find a link to enter. Tickets are priced at just £2, but make sure you enter soon. The raffle closes on Monday, March the 7th. Notice Board Totalizer, £1,130 Happy birthday, Louis!
Have a great eighth birthday. Enjoy the day. Love Mummy, Daddy and Ali. Enjoy your first Arsenal game, Carter. Love Dad and Danielle. Finley Wood. We hope you enjoy your first game at Emirates. Love Uncle Martin and Auntie Fee. Luke. We hope you have a fantastic 18th birthday. Love Mum, Dad, Jenna and all the family. Happy 16th birthday, Nick. Enjoy your day at Arsenal. Love Mum and Gary. Happy 14th birthday, Christos. We love you always, Dad, Mum and Elia. Happy 10th birthday, Ollie Callahan. Have a fantastic day. Love Mummy, Daddy and Bob, the dog. Welcome to the Arsenal world, Henry William Langmore, born September the ninth, twenty twenty one, at seven forty three p.m., weighing seven pounds twelve ounces. Happy fiftieth birthday, David Fox. Love Mary, May, Harvey, family and friends. Jaden Lewis. Happy seventeenth birthday. Enjoy the game. Love Dad. Happy fiftieth birthday, Nicola Holman. Love Mum. Happy 8th birthday, Sarah Ferugia. Love Maisie, Dulcie, Cubby, Mum and Dad. Happy first Arsenal match to Thomas and Ethan Wilding, age 8, from Worcester. Come on, you gunners. Arsenal remembers. Nathan Beauville was born October the 2nd, 2004, with a rare degenerative genetic disorder. His parents were told he would live to aged eight, but, like the Arsenal, he fought hard and passed away on November the 24th, 2021, aged 17. He was a gooner for life. Leon Taylor, Arsenal FC, sent deepest condolences to Leon's family. Leon was an avid supporter and keen semi-pro for Dolliston FC. He sadly passed suddenly on November the 24th, 2021, and leaves behind two beautiful children, Tia, aged 16, and Theo, aged 7. Sustainability Red, white and green Sustainability Focus Arsenal Football Club has a vision to lead the sporting community in a quest to a more sustainable future, and the Matchday programme is taking the lead. Working with Carbon Link in Kenya, this season's issue is offsetting the emissions generated during the programme production process, creating the Arsenal Forest in Africa. Carbon Link has estimated we need to plant 12,500 trees, each absorbing 20 kilograms of carbon dioxide over the next 10 years. The programme is also sponsoring small environmental projects around the club, as well as encouraging young fans and staff members to tell us about their green credentials. We are also highlighting our printer's environmental efforts. In addition, in each programme we showcase significant club-wide projects being undertaken as part of our drive to greater sustainability. Bishop's Backing Arsenal's programme print partner, Bishop's Printers, are considered one of the most environmentally conscious printers in the UK. Here we highlight their sustainability credentials. 
bishops invested in the installation of 1,500 solar panels, which cover the 85,000 square foot roof of their factory in Portsmouth. The solar panels have enabled the company to reduce their use of fossil fuels and their carbon footprint by offsetting 2,842 tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. Here we are. As you'll have heard in the Brentford programme, there's been major exposure of the Arsenal Forest on Kenyan national TV recently. As a consequence, Arsenal fans have been arriving from all over Kenya to see this little bit of Arsenal in East Africa. Luckily, Alex Katana, our project manager, has made sure the Arsenal Forest has clear signage for visiting Gunas. The Arsenal Forest making a difference. With more than 1,500 neem trees ordered and planted so far, the Arsenal Forest Project is already making a big difference to the lives of many people in Bore. Apart from the employment created in the propagation of the seedlings, many of our nursery workers have been able to put some of their wages aside to start up small businesses. This is good news, as these women don't get much help from anyone, and their only staple source of income is to make charcoal, which destroys their forest and sends a lot of carbon dioxide skywards. Women like Eunice Samini, who has opened the Bore Singwaya trading post, where she sells a range of locally grown fruit and vegetables. And Emmeline Hare, who has been able to start a part-time tailoring business. The steady demand for school uniforms keeps her busy. Then there's Sidi Kazungu, who has purchased a small herd of purebred goats. They graze voraciously on almost anything green, so it's just as well the Arsenal Forest ceilings are well protected with sturdy fencing. And lastly, the resourceful Judith Karembu has been able to buy plastic buckets and jerry cans and now has a profitable sideline, supplying clean water to other women from a local mains water kiosk. So the Arsenal Forest Project is not only compensating for the resources used in the making of the matchday programme and drawing down a chunk of carbon from the atmosphere over the long term, it is also helping these women develop sustainable income streams. Programme Upcycling Scheme Any programmes that we don't sell have traditionally been offered to our community projects as valuable resources. However, we would be more than happy to let supporters get involved in this upcycling if they have a charity, school or community venture that could benefit from old issues and have the means to be able to collect them from the stadium. Please drop us an email to programme at arsenal.co.uk outlining where and why you would like to use the old programmes and we'll be in touch. Grow your own. Carbon Link has already received a number of orders for trees from supporters wishing to add to the Arsenal Forest. Thanks so much for getting involved in this exciting project. We want to expand our 12.5 acre area to make our forest as big as possible. There are three options to purchase trees. 25 trees for £25, 50 for £50, 100 for £100. If you are concerned about your own carbon footprint, this is an excellent way of making a small, sustainable step in the right direction and also doing it in the name of the club you love. 
And what an excellent gift for an Arsenal fan in your life. Scan the QR code on the programme for more information on our project and details of how to be part of our forest. What is climate change? A reminder of what we are fighting and how we can do it. Throughout the articles we have been publishing on these pages, there has been a common theme, sustainability. You will have seen that Arsenal Football Club is taking its impact on the world and the environment very seriously. We are trying to help prevent the much-talked-about climate change, which all scientific experts now agree is undoubtedly taking place. But what is climate change, and why does it matter to us? Climate is the average weather in a place over many years. Climate change is a shift in those average conditions. The rapid climate change we are now seeing is caused by humans using oil, gas and coal for their homes, factories and transport. When these fossil fuels burn, they release greenhouse gases, mostly carbon dioxide. These gases trap the sun's heat and cause the planet's temperature to rise. The world is now approximately 1.2 degrees centigrade warmer than it was in the 19th century, and the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen by 50%. What is the impact of climate change? Extreme weather events are already more intense, threatening lives and livelihoods. With further warming, some regions could become uninhabitable as farmland turns into desert. In other regions, the opposite is happening, with extreme rainfall causing flooding, as seen recently in China and several European countries. Our oceans and its habitats are also under threat. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia, for example, has already lost half of its coral since 1995 due to warmer seas driven by climate change. Whilst we see far too many pictures of the damage that the waste we throw into the ocean causes, in a warmer world, animals will find it harder to find the food and water they need to live. For example, polar bears could die out as the ice they rely on melts away and elephants will struggle to find the 150 to 300 litres of water a day they need. Scientists believe at least 550 species could be lost this century if action is not taken. What can we do? Major changes need to come from governments and businesses, but scientists say some small changes in our lives can limit our impact on the climate. They recommend taking fewer flights, live car-free or use an electric car, switch to octopus energy for 100% renewable electricity, buy energy-efficient products such as washing machines when they need replacing. Switch off lights and turn down the thermostat on heating systems. Reduce your use of single-use plastic. Buy locally grown food and try to eat less meat. Switch from a gas heating system to an electric heat pump. Insulate your home. Your journey to sustainability starts here. Eco Gunners We ask young Arsenal supporters to tell us how they are helping the planet. In this issue, Edith, who is nine and from London, tells us all the things she is doing to help the environment. 
I am vegetarian because I don't agree with hurting animals and the impact farming animals has on the environment. I don't eat anything with palm oil in because it is a leading cause of deforestation of the rainforest and I have taught my parents to check ingredients of everything for this too. I go litter picking with my little sister in the park near where we live and I have built two bug hotels in our garden to give a safe home to mini beasts as well as hanging bird feeders. I have also planted wildflower seeds to help bees. I walk to and from school and always choose to walk rather than take the car if it's not too far. It's better for the environment and great exercise. I also took part in a protest against idling cars outside my school. Truly fantastic, Edith. A sustainable star. Octopus Energy, our official energy supplier and who are supporting the club on its sustainability journey are sending you a cuddly octopus. If you are thinking about the environment, we need to hear from you. Email juniorgunners at arsenal.co.uk now. If we feature you in the programme, our friends at Octopus will send you a cuddly octopus toy too. Staff Support Every issue of the program, we find out what Arsenal staff are doing to become more sustainable. Senior Manager Fan Services, Carly Parsons, has changed numerous aspects of her life recently. I have become vegan for animal welfare and the negative environmental impact of animal agriculture. I switched to a 100% renewable energy provider and have changed to a fully electric vehicle. I do up to 600 miles a week, so this has a huge effect on my carbon footprint. I've switched to environmentally friendly laundry detergent and cleaning products, and I use bamboo straws, reusable water bottles, and an air fryer instead of a cooker to use less energy. Wow, Carly, just wow. Player feature Kieran Tierney, Fanzone. Arsenal players discuss the influence and inspiration provided by you, the fans. It was seriously like an out-of-body experience. Despite having fewer than 100 first-team appearances to his name, Kieran Tierney is already a firm fan's favourite at Arsenal. In this exclusive interview with the Matchday programme, the left-back reveals how important that support is for his game, just as it was at boyhood club Celtic. Words, Josh James, Photography, Stuart McFarland, David Price, Getty. It's difficult to imagine a footballer who's had quite as close a relationship with his team's supporters than Kieran Tierney did at Celtic. A boyhood boy himself, the left-back had no problem channelling the spirit of being a fan whenever he was on the pitch for Celtic, and the Parkhead faithful immediately took to him from the moment he made his debut at the age of just 17. And their affection for Kieran wasn't just because he'd gone straight from the stands into the team, but also because of the commitment and pride he showed in every single appearance. And it's those qualities, among many others, that mean Arsenal fans have also taken the Scotland defender to their hearts so quickly. Quite simply, he approaches the game like any fan likes to think they would, given the same opportunity. 
and it is not surprising that Kieran plays the game that way, having been brought up in a family of devoted football fans. The very earliest memory I have of being a fan was from when I was about three or four, he begins. I lived in a tower block in Muirhouse, and I remember my dad telling me, we're going to the Celtic game this week. I remember watching them on TV before that, but that's my first memory of actually going there. I had the Celtic strip, I had the scarf, and I remember how excited I was going to bed that night. Then I remember going in on the supporters' bus to the game. I couldn't tell you who it was against or the score or anything like that. It's the experience of going to the stadium that I remember. It was the first time I had ever been to a football stadium. Even before that moment, there was never any doubt he would grow up to be a huge Celtic fan. He was born into that way of life. Yeah, my whole family are Celtic fans, he says. They ran the supporters' buses as well. In fact, they still go on the supporters' buses. There's actually a supporters' bus back home in the area I'm from called the Kieran Tierney Supporters' Club. It's my area, so a lot of my friends go to the games and they have supported me as well. So, to have something like that in my hometown is just amazing. It's something I'm really proud of. It's crazy to think there's now a supporters' club and a bus named after me. Born in the Isle of Man but moving to Scotland as a baby, he joined Celtic when he was just seven years old and was soon performing in front of a crowd, rather than just being part of one. He can still remember the sensation of having supporters there to see him play for the first time. It was when we were about eight or nine at a tournament in Germany. It was indoors, five aside, but there was a seated area too, and I remember people being at that game. There might have been a couple of hundred people there. It's my first memory of playing in front of a crowd. I was obviously quite nervous at the time. It was very different for me. In youth football, there aren't that many times when you play in a stadium or with a crowd until you get to about 16 or 17. So that stands out for me. It was something the young KT would have to get used to quickly as he steadily and swiftly rose through the ranks at Celtic. And he says that being part of a crowd himself and knowing how much they can help influence games actually made him more nervous when he started playing in front of them. Yeah, having been in a football crowd myself to that point, I knew what it could be like. But obviously you want to impress. You want to do well, so that adds to your game. I was already really hungry to play well, but maybe having people there gives you a little bit extra motivation to go out there and prove to anyone watching that you're a good player. The games I remember most in the youth team were obviously when we played Rangers. They allowed a certain number of fans to those games, and as a young player that was always a great experience. But really, nothing compares to Celtic versus Rangers in the first team. Whether it was Celtic Park or Ibrox, the atmosphere was always great. When we played at Ibrox, the Celtic fans always brought an amazing atmosphere to the game. It feels even better to beat your rivals away from home in a derby, knowing there are so many of their fans there to watch it. Knowing that a little group of your own fans are there too and enjoying it is the best feeling. That's the most intense atmosphere I've known or played in. But when you're at home and you have sung all the songs yourself, you are there watching these types of games yourself, you know exactly what it means to the fans. 
because not long ago you were there yourself. And yes, that can make it a bit harder. It's a lot of pressure playing in a game like that, whoever you are. But when you're homegrown and you have been there yourself in the stands, you're aware of how much it means. It does add some extra pressure. The connection Kieran had with the Celtic fans was never better illustrated than when he led the crowd's chants post-match in the stadium using a megaphone. Celtic confirmed the seventh successive Scottish Premiership title with a 5-0 win over Rangers in April 2018. And shortly after the final whistle, Kieran headed straight to the Green Brigade, Celtic Ultras section of Celtic Park, to start the celebrations in earnest, borrowing a megaphone from the supporters to do so. Stuff like that was just, just wow, he says, grinning. You will never be able to compare that feeling to anything else in the world. It was seriously like an out-of-body experience. I've got the megaphone, and I'm leading the chants with people I used to actually sit in the stands with. I was on the pitch, looking straight at my mates who I grew up with, who are down there at the front singing with you. Stuff like that is fairy tale stuff. It's not until you talk about it afterwards, or watch it back, that I realise how insane, how incredible it was. Kieran reveals it was a spur-of-the-moment thing rather than pre-planned, and it later became something of a trademark. He did it again following the League Cup final win over Aberdeen at the end of 2018. I knew the Ultras, he explained. I had grown up with them, so it's more a case of them asking me to come over after the game. Then they gave me the megaphone, gave me the scarf, and then I just led the charts. It was crazy to see the whole stadium bouncing. You know what? I've never done an interview about this before, or really spoken about it much. People just assume it means a lot to me, so don't ask about it. But when I think about it now, it really was incredible. What an experience that was. What a feeling it would be for anyone. The only thing you could really liken it is being a singer and having people sing your song back at you at a gig. It's like having a crowd at your gig and you're in charge of what song is coming up next. At the time I was just buzzing, he adds. But it's when you look back on moments like that when you realise how much it actually means to you. It wasn't just the fact that I was singing with the crowd, it was also the fact that we were winning trophies at the time, winning trebles, winning huge games. The megaphone and that stuff wouldn't have happened if we weren't successful. You have to do all the stuff on the pitch first, the hard work to get you there. Then it was like a reward. Kieran won four consecutive league titles with Celtic, including two domestic doubles and the treble, as well as winning Young Player of the Year three times. He had become a club icon by the age of 21. He believes a huge part of his success was down to those fans that idolised him and maybe saw a bit of themselves in him. There's no doubt at all that they made my career there. They really did. No doubt about it, he reiterates. The relationship I had with the fans was so important. To have that, to make me feel good all the time, to keep supporting me even if I played badly. After a bad result, they were still always there and during the good times they could see how much it meant to me, how much I was enjoying it, and how much they all enjoyed it with me. But there's no doubt at all that the fans played a huge, huge part in my time at Celtic. 
They seemed to take to me straight away, and I really had a feeling that they all looked after me. They supported me, they sang for me, and there was just an amazing feeling between us. I think it's because they knew my background, knew I was a working-class person who supported Celtic all his life and went to the games. Maybe they could relate to me. They were always a massive, massive help for me. Which presumably made his decision to leave the club even more difficult. KT had just turned 22 at the time, with 12 Scotland caps already to his name, and was hot property in European football. It was Arsenal who won the race for his signature when Unai Emery bought him to the club in the summer of 2019. Until that moment, had Kieran presumed he would be a one-club man his whole career? I think you need to have your mind be prepared for anything, he says. Of course, there was a time when I thought I'll probably always be there, because I was so happy. But it could also go other ways, where you are not good enough to stay at Celtic and have to move on. Or you have managed to do well, and you are earning a move that can better your career and make you a better player and person. You have to be prepared for all three of those options, but I never put great thought into any of it. I was more living in the moment and going day by day. It was never planned, it was just something that happened. He says he had no doubts, though, that he was making the right move when Arsenal came calling, and what made the transition much easier, he believes, was the love he felt from the Arsenal fans from the moment he arrived. The full-back adds the speed the bond grew with his new supporters took him by surprise. 100%. The Arsenal fans, ever since I came here, have been amazing. I was injured when I came, so for them to show love to an injured player, who they probably didn't know much about, speaks volume for how good a set of fans that is. They could have been questioning why we signed someone who's injured, but the support they showed me gave me so much confidence and then eventually when I made my debut, the reception I got was incredible. The feeling that gave me was amazing. Naturally, it's a different type of relationship to the one he had with the fans at Celtic Park, but he nevertheless feels very much a part of the Arsenal family. Yes, I love the fans. London is different from Glasgow in terms of not getting recognised as much down here, and it's a bigger city, but when I do get recognised, there's a lot of love and positive things. It makes you feel good about yourself. Maybe some players don't like it when people come up to you for a photo, but I welcome it. I love interacting with the fans and am always grateful whenever someone does want a picture or an autograph. Since I've been here, the Arsenal fans have helped me settle in a lot. It was a hard time for me, moving away from home, but the fans have eased that a lot. It's easy to see why the fans have warmed to Kieran, even if you don't take into account his consistency at left-back over the last two and a half years. Things like taking his boots to a game in a Tesco carrier bag, training and playing in short sleeves and shorts no matter what the weather, and generally displaying an incredible work ethic, have all helped to endear him to the Emirates faithful. But why does KT himself think the bond is so strong? I hope it's just for being me. I'm not trying to be anyone else. I'm the same person I was growing up. Obviously, life has changed a lot. Times have changed. But I'm still who I am, and I hope people can see that. I'm a hard worker. I believe you need to work for what you want. 
When you grow up as a working class person, you need to work for everything you've got. My mum and dad drilled that into me. I hope people see that and realise that I'm giving 100% for the badge every single time. Whether I'm playing well or not, I'm still giving 100% and I think the Arsenal fans love to see that. Maybe that's why they have taken to me, but I'm very grateful for it because they have been patient with me and whenever I've met them, it's all been positive. So where does all that leave his relationship with Celtic now? How does KT manage to follow and stay in touch with events at Parkhead from 400 miles away? I still speak to a lot of the players. Obviously some of them are my Scotland teammates. I watch them all the time on TV. It's been hard to go back and watch them at Celtic Park, and I thought it probably wasn't the best idea to do that straight after leaving. Then Covid hit, and there haven't been many opportunities to go up. Also, I don't want to risk anything with Covid at the moment, but it's something I'd love to do at some point. I want to go back and watch them again. I will do it at some stage, for sure. And the rest of the Tierney family? Is it a case of split loyalties now between their beloved son and their beloved football club? I know Celtic will always be their priority, he laughs. They love me and they support me, but Celtic will always be their number one. There's been a few times when I've been playing for Arsenal and my dad has been at a Celtic game with my uncle and cousins, my friends. But that's their life. They've always done that and they always will. I don't blame them for that for a second. I think it's quite good actually. Their life hasn't changed. They still support Celtic. When they get the chance to come and watch me, they do. But they make sure it doesn't clash with a Celtic game. That's for sure. Sing up for the Arsenal, remembering a classic Arsenal chant from through the years. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim churu, who needs an Elka when we've got canoe? To the tune of Chim chimney from Mary Poppins. After Nicolas Anelka left for Real Madrid in 1999, fans were a little bitter about how their young scoring sensation had departed the club, seemingly with such a bright future ahead of them. Luckily, in Nigerian striker Kanu, they had a player they already doted on and who'd scored goals and was outrageously skillful. So this song was born. We've Only Got One Song by Matthew Bazell and Mark Andrews is a book all about Arsenal songs down the years. It is available to buy from legendspublishing.net. Fact file, number three, Kieran Tierney, Defender, Scotland. Born Douglas, Isle of Man, June 5th, 1997. Joined from Celtic, August 8th, 2019. Previous club, Celtic. Debut versus Nottingham Forest home. League Cup, September 24th, 2019. 1-5-0. First goal versus Watford, home. Premier League, July 26th, 2020. 1-3-2. Arsenal Honours. FA Cup winner 2020, Community Shield winner 2020, Scotland Caps 30. The top five most followed teams on Instagram. 1. Real Madrid, 110 million. 2. Barcelona, 105 million. 3. Paris Saint-Germain, 56.3 million. 4. Manchester United, 55 million. 5. Juventus, 
52.4 million. Behind the headline. No more arsing around. The Sun, August 14, 1996. Gunners Vice Chairman David Dean had long regarded Arsene Wenger as a potential Arsenal manager a decade before he was officially appointed boss in August 1996. Yet details of Dean's long-standing interest in the then 47-year-old didn't emerge immediately, partly due to the uncertain atmosphere at Highbury following the sacking of the incumbent Bruce Riach. Newspaper headlines reflected this period of uncertainty. On August 13th, The Guardian announced Arsenal ditch Rioch and look abroad, before announcing that ex-Barcelona coach Johan Cruyff, who happened to be in London on the day Rioch was sacked, was a front-runner, as was Grandpa's eight boss Arsene Wenger. Cruyff dropped out of the running almost immediately. Ironically, given the Evening Standard's later headline, they revealed the club's thinking with the headline Arsenal want Wenger, and within three days, tabloids revealed that the incoming Arsenal boss wanted to bring AC Milan midfielder Patrick Vieira with him. Yet there was still a period of uncertainty in N5, with Grandpa Sate intimating that Wenger, who was still under contract, might remain in Japan until January. One Fleet Street writer had no doubts about the long-term situation at Highbury. Veteran football writer Brian Woolnow recalled, It was very clear to me that Arsenal wanted to take a new direction, and that, whatever rumours were swirling around, Wenger was their man. I can't remember whether it was me personally, or the Sun Sports Desk that chose the No More Arsing Around headline, I think it was a bit of both, but I like to think that it summed up the fact that the uncertainty surrounding the managerial position would soon be solved. Although, as it turned out, that didn't happen for a few weeks. In September, Bruce Rioch's assistant, Stuart Houston, departed Highbury to take up the managerial position at Queen's Park Rangers. Rioch was later named his assistant, and Pat Rice took over as caretaker manager. In some quarters, the move was seen as underwhelming and likely short-term, with Wenger regarded as having an over-scholarly air about him, but David Dean had no such doubts. As Monaco coach in the late 1980s, Wenger made regular trips to see games around Europe, and on one of his visits to Arsenal, the story goes that the Frenchman got lost in the bowels of Highbury, ending up in the ladies' lounge. None other than Barbara Dean, the vice-chairman's wife, came to his rescue, taking him to meet her husband, David. The two men struck an immediate rapport. Dean took Wenger along to a friend's dinner party, where the continental guest endeared himself to everyone during a late-night game of charades and impressed Dean with his savvy science, his intelligence and humour. Dean saw a kindred spirit in Wenger. Just as Wenger was utterly absorbed in his work, so Dean, who admitted to looking in the shaving mirror each morning and saying to himself, get a winning team, scoured the globe to improve the facilities at Highbury. His regular visits to the US reaffirmed his belief that all English clubs should modernise their stadia, scouting networks and training facilities. As luck would have it, Dean had a yacht moored at Antibes on the Côte d'Azur, a couple of miles down the coast from Monaco. By the early 1990s, 
Dean began to watch Monaco matches at the Stade Louis II on a regular basis, enjoying dinner with Wenger after matches. As Arsenal began to decline in the latter years of Graham, Dean began to think that if the club were ever to reinvent itself, then Wenger could be the man to spearhead the revolution. This was still some years off, but Dean was able to see at close hand the initiatives which Wenger used to turn Monaco, who had been struggling, into a powerful force in France, and which he later deployed in North London. Jean-Luc Ettori recalled, We wanted someone to get into our heads in a positive way. Arsene did that and instilled some of his natural confidence. Dean saw that Wenger turned upside down Monaco's training techniques. Wenger insisted on short, intense sessions, which were timed virtually to the microsecond. Former Monaco striker Mark Haightley explained, You're working the areas that you need to work. Your mind, your body, your feet, quick thinking. Then there were also the physical audits of the players, the plethora of specialists and the development of scouting networks across the globe. Players were made fully aware of the coaches' almost messianic views concerning drinking and eating. Haightley recalled, Healthy, fresh food and produce only. Drink in absolute moderation. It wasn't entirely revolutionary, but rather like Chapman in the 1930s, Wenger was a highly astute assimilator and adapter of ideas. Even when Wenger opted to coach Grampus 8 in Japan, he never veered far off Dean's radar, and in the turbulent summer after George Graham's sacking, Dean officially recommended Wenger to the board. The Wenger option appeared too much of a risk, particularly given that the only one foreign coach, Dr. Joseph Wenglos, had managed an English team at that point, Aston Villa, with little success. When Rioch was sacked, the Arsenal board agreed to Dean's insistence that, if the club were really to move into the 21st century, it had to take a punt on Arsene Who, as the Evening Standard headlines soon described him. He was unveiled to the Arsenal crowd in Big Brother style on the Jumbotron screens before the Sheffield Wednesday game at Highbury. It wasn't inspiring. The acoustics were so poor that the only decipherable comment was, let's win tonight. Tabletopping Wednesday took the lead through an Andy Booth goal before Wenger, watching via the new-fangled internet, instructed caretaker manager Pat Rice to send on the new signing from AC Milan, midfielder Patrick Vieira, all six foot four of him, to replace Ray Parler. As it turned out, it was a hugely symbolic substitution, and even from thousands of miles away, Arsene Hu was already making his mark. And as Brian Woolnow's memorable headline suggested, Wenger and the club were poised to move forwards with serious purpose and intent. Community Voice. Arsenal in the community engages more than 5,000 participants every week. Each issue we hear about one of our projects from their perspective. Kai is 20 and from Islington. He's a participant from our social inclusion programme's Kicks Positive Futures. The first time I heard about Kicks Positive Futures, I was very little, probably about seven years old. I remember walking through Harvest Estate, right next to Emirates Stadium, with my mum and my twin. Knowing it was free was a huge relief. As I grew up, my life was tough. 
I think that's where my challenging situation began. I didn't like education, so I didn't want to try and push for higher grades. I wasn't ambitious. The first session I went to, I just remember being happy in the environment. The coaches were great, they were supportive, and they ensured that I was in a safe environment. It was like that for every session I attended. They also gave me a lot of advice and tips on progression pathways, which obviously worked, as I now coach for the community department. The friendships, work relationships I have formed are with the best people. Personally, for me, I think that's the best thing that's come out of my time at Arsenal. The coaches I work with are such great people, who I respect highly. The team I have behind me are just incredible. Specifically, one coach I work with called Ramon at Harvest Estate. Ramon helped me prepare for the last day of my coaching course, and that was massive at the time. He's been supportive both on and off the pitch for me. Being part of social inclusion has changed me in a positive way. It's made me feel ambitious, and it's given me a goal to push towards, which is to be a fully licensed football coach. I didn't have a path before Arsenal. I've never been excited to look forward to doing something every week. It helps you adapt to the world, and in a working environment, it makes everything easier. I think the thing that surprised me most is how much casual coaches are looked up to by our participants. They always ask where we are, or how we are, and that puts a smile on my face. I'd never thought I'd have to be a role model to these guys, but I had to step up as a person to do it. Being part of Arsenal is like being part of a family. You support each other no matter what. It's also given me the confidence to take on any challenges that come my way, and to try new things, whether it be within Arsenal or outside of Arsenal. I'm prouder of myself than I have ever been. Arsenal Women. News and reports from England's most successful women's football team. Women at the Emirates, twice. We can confirm that Arsenal Women's North London derby match against Tottenham Hotspur will take place at Emirates Stadium on Saturday, March 26th. Kickoff is at 2.15pm. The game, which will also be shown live on BBC One, is the second of two women's matches that will be played at Emirates Stadium that week, preceded by our UEFA Women's Champions League fixture versus VFL Wolfsburg on Wednesday, March 23rd. Tickets are now available for both matches, each priced at £12 for adults and £6 for concessions. Club-level seating, which includes premium seats, a half-time drink and a matchday programme, is also available at £35 for adults and £17.50 for concessions. Go to arsenal.com forward slash women forward slash tickets for all the details. See you all at the Emirates. Standing Tall As part of Adidas's latest bra collection launch, research highlighted how few women were awarded statues in London. According to their findings, the capital has more monuments of men, 21%, and animals, 8%, than it does of women, at only 4%. To help rectify those low numbers, Adidas have honoured some of the UK's most inspiring, influential and iconic talent across sport, fashion and culture. The 3D printed statues, made from recycled marine farmed waste plastics, aims to increase representation of women in London. 
And guess which Dutch goal machine features in this fantastic campaign? Our super striker, Vivian Miedema. Our super striker, Vivian Miedema, is fronting this empowering venture and is joined by other luminaries from women's football, including former Lioness and current Angel City technical director, Eniola Aluko, and Goals for Girls founder, Francesca Brown. Such representation will inspire the next generation of changemakers, helping create a better, more equal future for women and girls in sport. The statues are currently on the South Bank under Tower Bridge, before being placed permanently elsewhere in early March. An array of items from Bra Collection are now available to purchase via adidas.co.uk forward slash women dash sports underscore bras. Congrats, Leah. Congratulations, Leah Williamson, who was announced as England's captain by manager Serena Weichmann prior to the start of the current Arnold Clark Cup competition. Leah started the Lionesses 1-1 draw against Canada with the armband, and came on in the second half in another draw last Sunday, nil-nil against Spain. England played the final match of the group stage last night against another of the world's top ten sides, Germany, at Molyneux. Of the other Arsenal players involved, Beth Mead came on against Canada and started against Spain, alongside Jordan Nobbs, who wasn't involved against Canada. Nice to meet you. Elsewhere, internationally, it's always nice to see two gunners facing each other, as happened when the Netherlands and Brazil played each other at Le Tournoi last week. Despite Raphael not featuring in the 1-1 draw, in which Viviane Miedema played the full 90 minutes, the pair did still manage to grab a lovely smiley picture together and swap shirts. Visitors, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Words, Mike Hammond, Photography, Getty Images. Formed, 1877. Nickname, Wolves. Owner, Fosun International. Stadium, Molyneux. Capacity, 32,050. Honours, First Division Champions, times three. FA Cup winners, times four. League Cup winners, times two. Charity Shield winners, times four. The 2021-22 Premier League season is turning out to be a memorable one for Wolverhampton Wanderers. Led by new head coach Bruno Lager, who succeeded his Portuguese compatriot Nuno Espirito Santo last summer, the West Midlanders are challenging hard for a place in Europe. They have proved particularly impressive both in defence and on the road where they have won seven of their 12 Premier League matches, including all of the last four, the most recent 2-0 at Tottenham 11 days ago. Three days before that successful visit to North London, Wolves were beaten 1-0 at home by Arsenal. This reverse fixture, originally scheduled for December 28th, gives Wolves a quick chance of redemption for that loss at Molyneux, where they also went down by the same scoreline earlier this month to Norwich City, in the fourth round of the FA Cup. While Wolves have proved an extremely tough team to break down this season, their defence having conceded no more than two goals in any of their 24 Premier League fixtures and just 18 in total, 
their attack has only recently begun to fire. Indeed, their tally of 23 goals is the lowest in the division of any club bar Norwich and Burnley. At the end of August, few Wolves fans would have imagined that six months later, their side would be challenging in the upper reaches of the table, given that their first three games all ended in 1-0 defeats. A 2-0 loss at home to Brentford made it four in their first five games, but fears about the new managerial regime were allayed by a five-match unbeaten run. If Wolves can maintain their momentum and keep most of their key players fit and healthy, a European berth beckons. Place seventh in each of their first two Premier League campaigns under Nuno, before a disappointing 13th last term, they also reached the UEFA Europa League quarterfinals two seasons ago. The boss, Bruno Lager, head coach, born May 12, 1976 in Setubal, Portugal. Previously, Benfica, 2019-20. Wolves went out on a limb when they decided to dismiss Nuno Espirito Santo, the man who had led the club for the four previous years, and replace him with fellow countryman Bruno Lager, a man with just 18 months' experience as a top-level head coach albeit in charge of Portugal's biggest club. After many years serving as a deputy, notably to Carlos Carval at Sheffield Wednesday and Swansea, he became Benfica's B-team coach in 2018 and was installed as first-team boss the following January, enjoying immediate and remarkable success as he led the Lisbon Eagles to the Portuguese title with 18 wins and one draw in his 19 games in charge. Number 1. Wearing the Gloves Jose Sá, Goalkeeper Born, Braga, Portugal, 17th of January 1993 Previously, Maritimo, Porto, Olympiacos The departure of Rui Patricio to Roma last summer led to the arrival at Molyneux of another Portuguese goalkeeper in 28-year-old Jose Sá who joined on a five-year contract after three fine years in Greece with Olympiacos, where he won two league titles, one domestic cup, and the 2019-20 Super League Goalkeeper of the Year award. He has made an excellent start to life in the Premier League, starting every Premier League game, conceding just 18 goals and keeping nine clean sheets. Number 16. Leading by example. Connor Cody. Defender. Born Liverpool, 25th of February 1993. Previously, Liverpool, Sheffield United, Lone, Huddersfield. A 2010 European under-17 champion with England, Connor came up through the Liverpool Academy but was unable to break through into the first team. An outstanding contributor to Wolves' 2017-18 championship triumph the Merseysider has barely missed a minute of Premier League action since promotion, captaining the team with gritty authority from the centre of the back three and recently making his 300th appearance for the old gold. His consistency of performance has earned him due reward with eight full international caps for England. Number 27. Rocking the Casbah. Romain Sais, Defender. Born Borg de Péage, France. 26th of March 1990. Previously, Valence, Clermont, Le Havre, Anger. 
long-serving Moroccan international Romain has been earning rave reviews for Wolves this season, his sixth at Molyneux, not only for his outstanding work in defence on the left side of the back three, alongside Connor Cody and Max Kilman, but also with a couple of vital goals, in victories away to Aston Villa and Crystal Palace. He recently returned from his third Africa Cup of Nations tournament, where he captained his country to the quarter-finals. Number 23. Coming of age, Max Kilman, defender. Born, Chelsea, 23rd of May, 1997. Previously, Welling, Maidenhead, Marlow, Lone. A former non-league defender, whose main claim to fame was the 25 caps he won for England's futsal team, Max joined Wolves from National League outfit Maidenhead, in 2018. His progress under former boss Nuno was relatively steady, but the tall defender has been outstanding this season under Bruno Lager, starting every Premier League game on the right-hand side of the back three and scoring his first Wolves goal in a 2-1 win at home to Everton. Number 28. Pulling the strings. Jao Moutinho, midfielder. Born Barriero, Portugal, 8th of September 1986. Previously, Sporting, Porto, Monaco. Still strutting his stuff at 35, though absent of late with a calf issue, Zhao joined Wolves in July 2018 for a reported £5 million. A clever, vastly experienced midfielder, he has been capped 142 times by Portugal, second only to Cristiano Ronaldo, 184 and was a member of the team that won Euro 2016 as well as the 2018 Nations League. He won three Portuguese championships and the Europa League with Porto before moving to Monaco, where he also captured the 2016-17 Liga 1 title. Number 8. Making the play. Ruben Neves, midfielder. Born. Mozelos, Portugal, 13th of March 1997. Previously, Porto. Ruben became Porto's youngest scorer and Champions League participant before accompanying coach Nuno to Wolves in 2017. The crafty midfielder took the championship by storm before transporting his talents to the Premier League and is now an established Portugal international with 26 caps. Long renowned for his powerful shooting from distance, the 24-year-old has scored vital goals at Aston Villa, Brentford and on Sunday against Leicester this term and made his 200th Wolves appearance against Spurs earlier this month. Number 11. Still settling in. Francisco Trincao. Winger. Born. Viana do Castelo, Portugal. 29th of December 1999. Previously, Braga, Barcelona. The Portuguese legion at Molyneux acquired a new temporary member last summer when Francisco agreed to join Wolves on a season-long loan from Barcelona. He had just one hit-and-miss season at the new camp, but the star quality of the tricky young winger has been plain to see both at previous club Braga and for Portugal's youth selections, notably at the 2018 European Under-19 Championship where he was the joint top scorer in his country's trophy success. Number 9. Leading the line. Raul Jimenez. Forward. 
Born Tepeji, Mexico, 5th of May 1991. Previously, America, Atletico Madrid, Benfica. This evening's return to Emirates Stadium will be a poignant one for Raul, as it was here on November 29, 2020, that the Mexican strikers fractured his skull. A terrible injury that ended his season, but mercifully not his career. His return to the apex of the Wolves' attack this term, complete with head guard, and his recent goal against Tottenham, suggests he is easing back to the kind of prolific form that made the ex-Benfica man one of the Premier League's most feared centre-forwards. Visitors, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Scouting Report Words, Michael Cox, Photography, Getty Images It feels like Wolves haven't changed much since last season. They still have a Portuguese manager, they still play a back three, and their games have featured by far the fewest goals in this season Premier League. But Bruno Lager has asked his side to play with more positive intent and they're more capable of dominating games. Lager has used a 3-4-3 formation for the majority of the campaign, although like his predecessor Nuno Espirito Santo has moved to a 3-5-2 on occasion, doing so against Manchester City, Chelsea, Brentford and Tottenham over the past couple of months. The defensive unit, however, remains intact. Goalkeeper Jose Saar and the back three of Max Kilman, Connor Cody and Roman Seiss had started every Premier League game together this season until a brief two-game spell when Seiss was away at the Africa Cup of Nations. Unusually, the wide centre-backs play on the wrong sides, with left-footed Kilman impressing on the right and right-footed Seiss comfortably on the left. Between them, Cody plays as something of a sweeper, rarely contesting aerial duels, but reading the game excellently and playing long balls downfield. Wolves have tremendous long-range passing ability from deep positions, because regular central midfield duo Ruben Neves and Jao Moutinho, a consistent partnership throughout Wolves' Premier League spell, are both excellent at spraying balls out wide and have increasingly looked for balls in behind for speedy forwards too. Neves is a goal-scoring threat from outside the box, whilst Moutinho's set-piece delivery is very dangerous. Leandro Dendonca has often come in as the third central midfielder, while Moutinho's recent injury absence gave an opportunity for 19-year-old Luke Cundle to make his full debut in a recent 2-0 win at Tottenham. Nelson Semedo has attacked well from right wing-back this season, while on the left the Brazilian Marçal and youngster Ryan Aitnori have started roughly the same number of games. Wolves' real problem this season has been in the final third. They've already failed to score in 11 matches this season. Raul Jimenez is happily backfiring again after the horrendous injury he suffered here last season, and on his day is the complete centre-forward capable of coming short to link play, acting as a target for long balls and speeding away on the break too. If Jimenez is joined by a strike partner in a 3-5-2, it's likely to be Daniel Podence, a diminutive, creative talent capable of finding pockets of space and playing clever passes who was outstanding against Leicester on Sunday. In a 4-3-3, they're likely to be joined by Trin Sal 
who started the reverse fixture earlier this month, although he was replaced by Chiquino, a January arrival. Fabio Silva, one of nine Portuguese players to have played for the club this season, is another option. USP, set play set up. Wolves are dangerous from set plays. In a 3-2 comeback win over Aston Villa in October, all three goals came from those situations. In particular, they're good at keeping the ball alive when the initial cross is cleared and are effective at striking from the second phase. Academy Young Gun Omari Hutchinson The Basics Name Omari Hutchinson Born Caterham, October 30th, 2003 Joined Arsenal in May 2015 His height and weight are 5 foot 8 inches and 67 kilograms Positions played Right wing or central attacking midfield School Oxted School Oxted Surrey. He rates his football abilities out of a hundred. Pace ninety two, dribbling ninety, passing eighty five, shooting eighty nine, defending fifty, physical seventy two. This season has been a really important one for me in terms of my development as a player and person. Since Kevin Bestie has arrived at the club, he's really helped me to progress as a player and I feel like my development is on the right track. This is my first season with the under-23s and he's given me the licence and freedom to express myself in the final third. I've been working so hard on my individual development programme in training and I feel like I'm now really starting to see the rewards for that hard work. Things like ball protection, 1v1s, playing direct, getting into the penalty area. I've seen so much improvement this season and the numbers are backing that up. But now the next step for me is to really work on the defensive side of my game. I need to be smarter in my positioning and I need to get back into our defensive shape as quick as possible because that's what Mikel Arteta and his staff are demanding from all the players in the first team right down to the academy at every level. That will be a really important part of my development because we all know that if you want to play in the Premier League, there's no room for players that only want to dribble, score goals and influence the game in the final third. You have to be able to do it all and understand what Mikel wants from me. You have to be capable of retaining possession when you're surrounded by players and you have to be willing to track your runner when you're deep into stoppage time and your legs are feeling heavy and tired. It's the small details that count at the highest level. You can be the most technical player in the academy or first team, but if you don't have that defensive side to your game and teams are going to exploit those spaces on the pitch... I'm quite a small player and I know that I'm going to come across some really big and physical defenders, so I can't shy away from it. I'm a nippy and skillful player, so if I can combine that with being able to shrug off players and play with my back to goal, I'm going to be able to help the team in so many more situations. 
Since taking the step up to under 23s football, I've got to be honest and say I don't feel like there's been a huge step up, but I think that's because of all the work that's been happening on the training pitch. It's definitely more physical. I played against four West Ham first team players on the opening day of the season, for example, but I feel like I've adapted really quickly and I want to keep making those steps up. Training with the first team has been the perfect opportunity to do that, and I've had the honour of doing that quite a lot this season. For me, as I've already said, it's about the small details. When we're doing the passing drills, they want everything crisp and sharp at a ridiculously high tempo. I don't think people realise just how quick it is until you're up close and involved. I also think that at this level, there are lots of skilled passers and dribblers technically, but what's just as important is knowing when to do it, because otherwise they'll just read the play and move you off the ball. Communication is so important too. Everyone is talking and everyone is demanding high standards. I love that, because I love high-tempo football. I can feel myself getting sharper in every training session. When I look at someone like Bukayo, it's clear for me to see how he's been able to make the step up to the first team. I never got to watch him when he first broke into the team in training, but as he's got older and stronger, whenever we're doing the formation work from the goalie to the forwards, what stands out to me is that he does the basics so well, and he's so good at holding the ball up and protecting attacks. He's so strong and so powerful, and he's always listening to what the coaches are telling him to do. I feel like I can learn so much from him, both on and off the pitch. I'm really proud of what I've been able to achieve this season in terms of my own personal development, but I know how much work is needed to make it to the top, and every day I tell myself that I need to remain focused and humble. There's no substitute for hard work. I'm just trying to give my all in training every day and stand out on match days. And I'm always analysing my games with my coaches, brothers and dad. So whenever the time comes, it will come. I can't control that. I'm just going to do my best to show everyone what I can do. About me. Favourite footballer of all time. Neymar. If I could have a conversation with anyone in the world, it would be Eric Thomas. If I could speak to my younger self, I'd say keep enjoying football and always have a smile on your face. Favourite follow on Instagram, 433. Favourite music artist, Meek Mill or Lil Baby. Favourite pre-match song, Lil Baby Freestyle. Best football attribute. Direct and skillful. One thing I need on an away day. Headphones. One thing I want to do in my career. Win as many trophies as possible. If I wasn't a footballer, I would like to do something related to luxury cars or be a chef. First team players I look up to most are Bukayo and Martinelli. Player who shaped my game most, myself. Best thing about being at Arsenal, the number of top players that have come through the history of the club. Something not many people know about me. I like collecting fragrances. Fragrances.
Around the academy, Walters goes pro. Talented young right back Rule Walters has signed his first professional contract with the club. Rule joined us from Manchester United in November 2020 after a spell with Tottenham Hotspur. The 17-year-old has since developed into an important player at both under 18 and under 23 level this season, making 21 appearances in all competitions and providing one assist. Rule has already made his mark on the international stage and made his debut for England under 18 in November last year. Congrats, Rule, and keep up the hard work. Young gun shines for imps. Brooke Norden Cuffey has made a more than impressive start to life on loan with Lincoln City. Our 18-year-old right back has instantly become a mainstay for the League One side since joining in the January transfer window, and his good form was acknowledged with consecutive Man of the Match awards against Wickham and Doncaster Rovers. Brooke came up against fellow loanee Matt Smith in the one-nil defeat to Doncaster, and his good form will boost Michael Appleton's side. In their bid to climb up the League One table, Brooke has done fantastically well. Appleton said, "The thing I like is his mentality and attitude. He's eager to do well, and that impresses me the most about him." Edwards continues scoring streak. Everything that Kayon Edwards touches has turned to goals this season. Our 18-year-old pacey striker registered his 19th goal of the campaign in our narrow 2-1 defeat to Stoke City. In the Premier League Cup earlier this month, Edwards has also contributed six assists this season and shown impressive versatility in recent weeks, having been deployed in an advanced central midfield role by under-18s coach Dan Mckichy. The forward has been with the club from the age of just five when he joined the pre-academy and then worked his way through the ranks at Hale End, making his debut at under-23 level last term. Match action: Arsenal versus Brentford. Arsenal two, Brentford one. Arsenal scorers: Smith Rowe, forty eighth minute; Saka, seventy ninth minute. Brentford: Norgard, ninety third minute. Saturday, February nineteenth, twenty twenty two, Emirates Stadium. Timeline: eleventh minute. Arsenal have a strong appeal for a penalty turned down when Lacazette is fouled. Thirteenth minute. Lacazette has the ball in the net, but is just offside. Thirty-eighth minute, another penalty appeal turned down for us after an apparent handball. Forty-eighth minute, Smith Rowe opens the scoring after an excellent run and finish in the box. Seventy-ninth minute, Saka doubles the lead with a cracking shot in off the post. Ninetieth minute, Norgard pulls one back in injury time from close range. Talking heads. Cedric Soares. We started the game really, really well. Everyone was motivated. Everyone wanted to score. Everyone was helping each other. And playing at home with these fantastic fans today was fantastic. It was the right mentality. They were all behind us, and the team felt it. It felt good, and I think the team is like a unit right now. We're super together, and we'll be like this until the end of the season for sure. Mikel Arteta. I'm very happy. Especially with the way we started the game, we had really clear intentions, a real purpose to attack them, be consistent, take risks, be direct, have enough runs in behind and threat, put the ball in the box, 
arrive with numbers, counterpress. Don't allow them to make the transition that they want to do. We really controlled the game, I think. We played really, really well. Facts. Emil Smith-Rowe's goal was our 600th at the Emirates in the Premier League. We're unbeaten in our last 29 Premier League home games, kicking off at 3pm on a Saturday. Alexandra Lacazette has registered 23 Premier League assists, seven more than any other player for us since he joined. Supporters Voice This issue, Iranian Guna Misak Lagai tells us about a recent convert to the Arsenal way. His wife, Mashid. My wife, Mashid, was not a football fan at all. It was weird for me as a lifetime Arsenal fan that she had never followed any football club in her life and it's weird for her as well that I was so interested in watching Arsenal. After we were married, I tried so hard for a number of years to convince her to watch football, especially Arsenal, but I didn't have any success. My dream was for us to support the team together, feel the joy of football and talk about Arsenal. Two years ago, we moved to London from our country, Iran, and because of Arsenal, we decided to live in Islington, very close to Emirates Stadium. She started to enjoy being around the Arsenal local supporters. We were watching them before matches and felt the vibe of the match days. I could understand that she was getting interested in football by seeing families who were supporting Arsenal alongside each other. She was getting curious and started to ask me more about Arsenal and the history of the club. I was telling her some stories about the legends, memories and the reasons for being an Arsenal fan every day. I could see she was getting interested more and more. One day we decided to finally go to a home match. It was to be her first time in a stadium. The match was between Arsenal women against Chelsea women at the start of this season. And we beat them. She enjoyed that game a lot and started to realise that she wanted to continue attending football matches. We went to some home matches more often. We were becoming a small Arsenal family together. Mashid felt she loved this club not only because of the football, but because of the great history of Arsenal, its values, the vibe of the stadium and the way all Gooners support Arsenal together. She now tells me how she enjoys watching Arsenal in the stadium and wants to know more and more about the club. We attended the Women's FA Cup final at Wembley Stadium and although the result was not good for us, we were so happy to be there and show our support to the great women's team. It's true that Mashid is a new member of the Guna family, but the way she supports both Arsenal's men and women makes me very proud and I hope we are going to have great moments together as an Arsenal supporting family. Know an Arsenal fan whose story should be told? Perhaps they have gone to great lengths to show their support for the Gunners, battled against difficulties in their lives or shown great compassion for others. If you think they have a story, we need to hear it. Email us at program at arsenal.co.uk Every supporter featured will receive a unique personalised version of the Matchday programme featuring their story. Teams For Arsenal, manager Mikel Arteta 
red shirts with white sleeves, white shorts, red and white hoop socks. One Ben Leno, goalkeeper. Three Kieran Tierney. Four Ben White. Five Tomas Party. Six Gabriel. Seven Bukayo Saka. Eight Martin Odegaard. Nine Alexandre Lacazette. Ten Emil Smith Rowe. Sixteen Rob Holding. Seventeen Cedric Suarez. Eighteen Takahiro Tomiyasu. Nineteen Nicolas Pepe. Twenty Nuno Tavares. Twenty three Albert Sambi Lokonga. Twenty five Mohamed El Nani. Thirty Edian Kitia. Thirty two Aaron Ramsdale, goalkeeper. Thirty three Arthur Okonkwo, goalkeeper. Thirty four Granite Shaka. Thirty five Gabriel Martinelli. Fifty eight Mika Bierth. Sixty five Salah Adin Ulad Amhand. Seventy five Zach Arway. Eighty two Omari Hutchinson. Eighty seven Charlie Patino. For Wolverhampton Wanderers, manager Bruno Larger. Gold shirts with black trim, black shorts, gold socks. 1. Jose Sarr, goalkeeper. 2. He Jana Hueva. 3. Rayon Ednuri. 5. Markle. 7. Pedro Neto. 8. Ruben Neves. 9. Raul Jimenez. 10. Daniel Pedance. 11. Francesco Trinco. 14. Yerson Muscara. 15. Willy Boley. 16. Connor Cody. 17. Fabio Silva. 19. Johnny. 20. Chinquinho. 21. John Ruddy, goalkeeper. 22. Nelson Semedo. 23. Max Kilman. 24. Toti. 26. He Chang Huan. 27. Remain Sace. 28. Hao Montinho. 32. Leander Dendonka. 39. Luke Cundall. Referee Martin Atkinson. Assistant referees Lee Betts. James Mannering. Fourth official Kevin Friend. VAR official John Brooks. Additional VAR official Stuart Burt. The Arsenal Foundation. Helping young people fulfil their potential through education and sport. No room for racism. Camden Town Brewery, official beer partner of Arsenal FC. Emirates, Arsenal official partner. Travel with peace of mind, fly better. There's no hiding our smiles, even with our masks on. Some things may have changed, but our warm welcome is still the same. Fly with us to your next destination with peace of mind, knowing our highly trained cabin crew are there to look after your comfort and safety all the way. 
Fly safer with Emirates. It's time to step up your cyber protection. Get hashtag cyber fit with Acronis. Acronis, official partner of Arsenal. 